Section 2 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901 through 1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Theodore Roosevelt, December 3, 1901, Part 2. There should be created a cabinet officer to be known as Secretary of Commerce and Industries, as provided in the bill introduced at the last session of the Congress. It should be his province to deal with commerce in its broadest sense, including, among many other things, whatever concerns labor and all matters affecting the great business corporations in our merchant marine. The course proposed is one phase of what should be a comprehensive and far-reaching scheme of constructive statesmanship for the purpose of broadening our markets, securing our business interests on a safe basis, and making for our minute position in the international industrial world, while scrupulously safeguarding the rights of wage worker and capitalist, of investor and private citizen, so as to secure equity as between man and man in this republic. With the sole exception of the farming interest, no one matter is of such vital moment to our whole people as the welfare of the wage workers. If the farmer and the wage worker are well off, it is absolutely certain that all others will be well off too. It is therefore a matter for hearty congratulation that on the whole, wages are higher today in the United States than ever before in our history, and far higher than in any other country. The standard of living is also higher than ever before. Every effort of legislator and administrator should be bent to secure the permanency of this condition of things, and its improvement wherever possible. Not only must our labor be protected by the tariff, but it should also be protected, so far as it is possible, from the presence in this country of any laborers brought over by contract, or of those who, coming freely, yet represent a standard of living so depressed that they can undersell our men in the labor market and drag them to a lower level. I regard it as necessary, with this end in view, to reenact immediately the law excluding Chinese laborers and to strengthen it wherever necessary in order to make its enforcement entirely effective. The national government should demand the highest quality of service from its employees, and in return it should be a good employer. If possible, legislation should be passed in connection with the interstate commerce law, which will render effective the efforts of different states to do away with the competition of convict contract labor in the open labor market, so far as practicable under the conditions of government work. Provision should be made to render the enforcement of the eight-hour day easy and certain. In all industries carried on directly or indirectly for the United States government, women and children should be protected from excessive hours of labor, from night work, and from work under unsanitary conditions. The government should provide in its contracts that all work should be done under fair conditions, and in addition to setting a high standard should uphold it by proper inspection extending if necessary to the subcontractors. The government should forbid all night work for women and children, as well as excessive overtime. For the District of Columbia, good factory law should be passed, and as a possible indirect aid to such laws, provision should be made to turn the inhabited alleys, the existence of which is a reproach to our capital city, into minor streets, where the inhabitants can live under conditions favorable to health and morals. 
American wage earners work with their heads as well as their hands. Moreover, they take a keen pride in what they are doing, so that independent of the reward, they wish to turn out a perfect job. This is the great secret of our success in competition with the labor of foreign countries. The most vital problem with which this country, and for that matter the whole civilized world, has to deal is the problem which has for one side the betterment of social conditions, moral and physical, in large cities, and for another side the effort to deal with that tangle of far-reaching questions which we group together when we speak of labor. The chief factor in the success of each man, wage worker, farmer, and capitalist alike, must ever be the sum total of his individual qualities and abilities. Second only to this comes the power of acting in combination or association with others. Very great good has been and will be accomplished by associations or unions of wage workers when managed with forethought, when they combine insistence upon their own rights with law-abiding respect for the rights of others. The display of these qualities in such bodies is a duty to the nation no less than the associations themselves. Finally, there must also in many cases be action by the government in order to safeguard the rights and interests of all. Under our Constitution, there is much more scope for such action by the state and the municipality than by the nation. But on points such as those touched on above, the national government can act. When all is said and done, the rule of brotherhood remains as the indispensable prerequisite to success in the kind of national life for which we strive. Each man must work for himself, and unless he so works, no outside help can avail him. But each man must remember also that he is indeed his brother's keeper, and that while no man who refuses to walk can be carried with advantage to himself or anyone else, yet that each at times stumbles or halts, that each at times needs to have the helping hand outstretched to him. To be permanently effective, aid must always take the form of helping a man to help himself and we can all best help ourselves by joining together in the work that is of common interest to all. Our present immigration laws are unsatisfactory. We need every honest and efficient immigrant fitted to become an American citizen. Every immigrant who comes here to stay, who brings here a strong body, a stout heart, a good head, and a resolute purpose to do his duty well in every way, and to bring up his children as law-abiding and God-fearing members of the community but there should be a comprehensive law enacted with the object of working a threefold improvement over our present system. First, we should aim to exclude absolutely not only all persons who are known to be believers in anarchistic principles or members of anarchistic societies, but also all persons who are of a low moral tendency or of unsavory reputation. This means that we should require a more thorough system of inspection abroad in a more rigid system of examination at our immigration ports, the former being especially necessary. The second object of a proper immigration law ought to be to secure by a careful and not merely perfunctory educational test some intelligent capacity to appreciate American institutions and act sanely as American citizens. This would not keep out all anarchists, for many of them belong to the intelligent criminal class but it would do what is also in point that is tend to decrease the sum of ignorance so potent in producing the envy, suspicion, malignant passion, and hatred of order 
out of which anarchistic sentiment inevitably springs finally all persons should be excluded who are below a certain standard of economic fitness to enter our industrial field as competitors with american labor there should be proper proof of personal capacity to earn an american living and enough money to ensure a decent start under american conditions this would stop the influx of cheap labor and the resulting competition which gives rise to so much of bitterness in american industrial life and it would dry up the springs of the pestilential social conditions in our great cities where anarchistic organizations have their greatest possibility of growth both the educational and economic tests in a wise immigration law should be designed to elevate the general body politic and social a very close supervision should be exercised over the steamship companies which mainly bring over the immigrants and they should be held to a strict accountability for any infraction of the law there is general acquiescence in our present tariff system as a national policy the first requisite to our prosperity is the continuity and stability of this economic policy nothing could be more unwise than to disturb the business interests of the country by any general tariff change at this time doubt apprehension uncertainty are exactly what we most wish to avoid in the interest of our commercial and material well-being our experience in the past has shown that sweeping revisions of the tariff are apt to produce conditions closely approaching panic in the business world yet it is not only possible but eminently desirable to combine with the stability of our economic system a supplementary system of reciprocal benefit and obligation with other nations such reciprocity is an incident and result of the firm establishment and preservation of our present economic policy it was specially provided for in the present tariff law reciprocity must be treated as the handmaiden of protection our first duty is to see that the protection granted by the tariff in every case where it is needed is maintained and that reciprocity be sought for so far as it can safely be done without injury to our home industries just how far this is must be determined according to the individual case remembering always that every application of our tariff policy to meet our shifting national needs must be conditioned upon the cardinal fact that the duties must never be reduced below the point that will cover the difference between the labor cost here and abroad the well-being of the wage worker is a prime consideration of our entire policy of economic legislation subject to this proviso of the proper protection necessary to our industrial well-being at home the principle of reciprocity must command our hearty support the phenomenal growth of our export trade emphasizes the urgency of the need for wider markets and for a liberal policy in dealing with foreign nations whatever is merely petty and vexatious in the way of trade restrictions should be avoided the customers to whom we dispose of our surplus products in the long run directly or indirectly purchase those surplus products by giving us something in return their ability to purchase our products should as far as possible be secured by so arranging our tariff as to enable us to take from them those products which we can use without harm to our own industries and labor or the use of which will be of market benefit to us it is most important that we should maintain the high level of our present prosperity we have now reached the point in the development of our interests where we are not only able to supply our own markets 
but to produce a constantly growing surplus for which we must find markets abroad. To secure these markets, we can utilize existing duties in any case where they are no longer needed for the purpose of protection, or in any case where the article is not produced here and the duty is no longer necessary for revenue, as giving us something to offer in exchange for what we ask. The cordial relations with other nations which are so desirable will naturally be promoted by the course thus required by our own interests. The natural line of development for a policy of reciprocity will be in connection with those of our productions, which no longer require all of the support once needed to establish them upon a sound basis, and with those others which either because of natural or of economic causes we are beyond the reach of successful competition. I ask the attention of the Senate to the reciprocity treaties laid before it by my predecessor. The condition of the American merchant marine is such as to call for immediate remedial action by the Congress. It is discreditable to us as a nation that a merchant marine should be utterly insignificant in comparison to that of other nations which we overtop in other forms of business. We should not longer submit to conditions under which only a trifling portion of our great commerce is carried in our own ships. To remedy this state of things would not merely serve to build up our shipping interests, but it would also result in benefit to all who are interested in the permanent establishment of a wider market for American products, and would provide an auxiliary force for the Navy. Ships work for their own countries just as railroads work for their terminal points. Shipping lines, if established to the principal countries with which we have dealings, would be a political as well as commercial benefit. From every standpoint, it is unwise for the United States to continue to rely upon the ships of competing nations for the distribution of our goods. It should be made advantageous to carry American goods in American-built ships. At present, American shipping is under certain great disadvantages when put in competition with the shipping of foreign countries. Many of the fast foreign steamships at a speed of 14 knots or above are subsidized, and all our ships, sailing vessels and steamers alike, cargo carriers of slow speed and mail carriers of high speed, have to meet the fact that the original cost of building American ships is greater than is the case abroad, that the wages paid American officers and seamen are very much higher than those paid the officers and seamen of foreign competing countries and that the standard of living on our ships is far superior to the standard of living on the ships of our commercial rivals. Our government should take such action as will remedy these inequalities. The American merchant marine should be restored to the ocean. The Act of March 14, 1900, intended unequivocally to establish gold as the standard money and to maintain at a parity therewith all forms of money medium in use with us, has been shown to be timely and judicious. The price of our government bonds in the world's market, when compared with the price of similar obligations issued by other nations, is a flattering tribute to our public credit. This condition it is evidently desirable to maintain. In many respects, the national banking law furnishes sufficient liberty for the proper exercise of the banking function but there seems to be need of better safeguards against the deranging influence of commercial crises and financial panics. Moreover, the currency of the country should be made responsive to the demands of our domestic trade and commerce. 
the collections from duties on imports and internal taxes continue to exceed the ordinary expenditures of the government, thanks mainly to the reduced army expenditures. The utmost care should be taken not to reduce the revenue so that there will be any possibility of a deficit, but after providing against any such contingency, means should be adopted which will bring the revenues more nearly within the limit of our actual needs. In his report to the Congress, the Secretary of the Treasury considers all these questions at length, and I ask your attention to the report and recommendations. I call special attention to the need of strict economy in expenditures, the fact that our national needs forbid us to be niggardly in providing whatever is actually necessary to our well-being should make us doubly careful to husband our national resources, as each of us husbands his private resources, by scrupulous avoidance of anything like wasteful or reckless expenditure. Only by avoidance of spending money on what is needless or unjustifiable can we legitimately keep our income to the point required to meet our needs that are genuine. In 1987, a measure was enacted for the regulation of interstate railways, commonly known as the Interstate Commerce Act. The cardinal provisions of that act were that railway rates should be just and reasonable, and that all shippers, localities, and commodities should be accorded equal treatment. A commission was created and endowed with what were supposed to be the necessary powers to execute the provisions of this act. That law was largely an experiment. Experience has shown the wisdom of its purposes, but has also shown possibly that some of its requirements are wrong, certainly that the means devised for the enforcement of its provisions are defective. Those who complain of the management of the railways allege that established rates are not maintained, that rebates and similar devices are habitually resorted to, that these preferences are usually in favor of the larger shipper, that they drive out of business the smaller competitor, that while many rates are too low, many others are excessive, and that gross preferences are made, affecting both localities and commodities. Upon the other hand, the railways assert that the law by its very terms tends to produce many of these illegal practices by depriving carriers of that right of concerted action which they claim is necessary to establish and maintain non-discriminating rates. The act should be amended. The railway is a public servant. Its rates should be just to and open to all shippers alike. The government should see to it that within its jurisdiction this is so, and should provide a speedy, inexpensive, and effective remedy to that end. At the same time, it must not be forgotten that our railways are the arteries through which the commercial lifeblood of this nation flows. Nothing could be more foolish than the enactment of legislation which would unnecessarily interfere with the development and operation of these commercial agencies. The subject is one of great importance and calls for the earnest attention of the Congress. The Department of Agriculture during the past 15 years has steadily broadened its work on economic lines and has accomplished results of real value in upbuilding domestic and foreign trade. It has gone into new fields until it is now in touch with all sections of our country and with two of the island groups that have lately come under our jurisdiction, whose people must look to agriculture as a livelihood. It is searching the world for grains, grasses, fruits, and vegetables, specially fitted for introduction into localities in the several states and territories 
where they may add materially to our resources by scientific attention to soil survey and possible new crops to breeding of new varieties of plants to experimental shipments to animal industry and applied chemistry very practical aid has been given our farming and stock growing interests the products of the farm have taken an unprecedented place in our export trade during the year that has just closed public opinion throughout the united states has moved steadily toward a just appreciation of the value of forests whether planted or of natural growth the great part played by them in the creation and maintenance of the national wealth is now more fully realized than ever before wise forest production does not mean the withdrawal of forest resources whether of wood water or grass from contributing their full share to the welfare of the people but on the contrary gives the assurance of larger and more certain supplies the fundamental idea of forestry is the perpetuation of forests by use forest protection is not an end of itself it is a means to increase and sustain the resources of our country and the industries which depend upon them the preservation of our forests is an imperative business necessity we have come to see clearly that whatever destroys the forest except to make way for agriculture threatens our well-being the practical usefulness of the national forest reserves to the mining grazing irrigation and other interests of the regions in which the reserves lie has led to a widespread demand by the people of the west for their protection and extension the forest reserves will inevitably be of still greater use in the future than in the past additions should be made to them whenever practicable and their usefulness should be increased by a thoroughly business-like management at present the protection of the forest reserves rests with the general land office the mapping and description of their timber with the united states geological survey and the preparation of plants for their conservative use with the bureau of forestry which is also charged with the general advancement of practical forestry in the united states these various functions should be united in the bureau of forestry to which they properly belong the present diffusion of responsibility is bad from every standpoint it prevents the effective cooperation between the government and the men who utilize the resource of the reserves without which the interests of both must suffer the scientific bureaus generally should be put under the department of agriculture the president should have by law the power of transferring lands for use as forest reserves to the department of agriculture he already has such power in the case of lands needed by the departments of war and navy the wise administration of the forest reserves will not be less helpful to the interests which depend on water than to those which depend on wood and grass the water supply itself depends upon the forest in arid region it is water not land which measures production the western half of the united states would sustain a population greater than that of our whole country today if the waters that now run to waste were saved and used for irrigation the forest and water problems are perhaps the most vital internal questions of the united states certain of the forest reserves should also be made preserves for the wild forest creatures all of the reserves should be better protected from fires many of them need special protection because of the great injury done by livestock above all by sheep the increase in deer elk and other animals in the yellowstone park shows what may be expected when other mountain forests are properly protected by law and properly guarded 
some of these areas have been so denuded of surface vegetation by overgrazing that the ground-breeding birds including grouse and quail and many mammals including deer have been exterminated or driven away at the same time the water-storing capacity of the surface has been decreased or destroyed thus promoting floods in times of rain and diminishing the flow of streams between rains in cases where natural conditions have been restored for a few years vegetation has again carpeted the ground birds and deer are coming back and hundreds of persons especially from the immediate neighborhood come each summer to enjoy the privilege of camping some at least of the forest reserves should afford perpetual protection to the native fauna and flora safe havens of refuge to our rapidly diminishing wild animals of the larger kinds and free camping grounds for the ever-increasing numbers of men and women who have learned to find rest health and recreation in the splendid forests and flower-clad meadows of our mountains the forest reserves should be set apart forever for the use and benefit of our people as a whole and not sacrificed to the short-sighted greed of a few the forests are natural reserves by restraining the streams in flood and replenishing them in drought they make possible the use of waters otherwise wasted they prevent the soil from washing and so protect the storage reserves from filling up with silt forest conservation is therefore an essential condition of water conservation the forests alone cannot however fully regulate and conserve the waters of the arid region great storage works are necessary to equalize the flow of streams and to save the flood waters their construction has been conclusively shown to be an undertaking too vast for private effort nor can it be best accomplished by the individual states acting alone far-reaching interstate problems are involved and the resources of single states would often be inadequate it is properly a national function at least in some of its features it is as right for the national government to make the streams and rivers of the arid region useful by engineering works for water storage as to make useful the rivers and harbors of the human region by engineering works of another kind the storing of the floods and reservoirs at the headwaters of our rivers is but an enlargement of our present policy of river control under which levees are built on the lower reaches of the same streams the government should construct and maintain these reservoirs as it does other public works where their purpose is to regulate the flow of streams the water should be turned freely into the channels in the dry season to take the same course under the same laws as the natural flow End of section 2